Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week for another fabulous Farcast. We've got a great Farcast lineup for you this evening. Uh, we we have uh, in our market commentary. We have a little bit of a new treat. We're going to go with a twist. The uh, from 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 down under. Uh, no, we're not bringing Keo back. Uh, we're going to go really down under uh, to Tennessee to Andy Mathis. Uh, he is a bond manager. He is an excellent one of the best bond managers, I argue, in the entire United States of America. I'll tell you more about Andy coming up and what his view is on interest rates and the Fed's meeting next week. By the way, I'll be on CNBC a few times next week talking about the interest rates and Fed meeting and all of that and what we can expect. Um, I've been lined up to do that for some time. Uh, Our uh, senior political analyst, Dan Mahaffey, is here. We're going to be uh, talking about what's going on in the Republican Party and, of course, the conflict with uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh. I have a lot of insights for you there. My sister signed the letter uh, in support of Judge Kavanaugh. She knew him uh, in high school. Um, And uh, I have a little more background there. Uh, And then Lester Munson is coming back. We got him back. Now, you know how hard it is to get a guest of his quality back on the forecast. It is terrific. But uh, he was well received by all of you, (laughs) adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins University. And we're going to be talking about China trade. And he's a real expert about what's going on in foreign trade and and international trade and what it means here in the U.S. So all of that's coming up. And and it's it's really exciting. And markets have been doing pretty well. Remember what our markets market guests have been telling us. Kenny Polcari says, eh, maybe sideways to a melt-up. Jack Perugian, uh, uh, well, Jack last time gave us a little bit, some words of warning. Jim Murio has been saying market's going to go higher, don't worry about a thing. Perugian goes, yeah, it's still going up, but the canary has gotten quiet in the coal mine. Uh, that's not a good thing if you're a coal miner and the canary stops singing. You can sort of figure out how those things used to work back before they had uh, those gas detectors in the coal mines. Um, it, it, shortly after the canary would go quiet, there would be a big boom. Um, <laughs> By the way, just in case you needed me to connect those dots. So, remember that on the forecast, we believe that money is hard to make. This is not easy stuff to make. You've got to be careful with it. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And we believe that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling scared or feeling ebullient, uh, pause. Uh, walk around the block. Check with your financial advisor. You know, phone a friend. Call Regis Philbin. I hear he's got a lot of time on his hands these days. He's probably happy to chat. Used to know a lot about being a millionaire. So, uh, But don't make a big emotional decision. That will be a mistake in my experience. So keep your powder dry. I'll, I'll tell you, before I get to Andy Mathis... I met with an institutional client today, um, and we were talking about their asset allocation. They said, well, you know, we can go up to 100% in equities, and we're about 75% in equities now, and we can have this far range of where we can be. And in 2008, our board said, we really need to go uh, to about 40% equities uh, in 2008, in the middle of the financial crisis. And ladies and gentlemen, that struck me as patently wrong, by the way. Everybody of it just kind of struck me as wrong. And I told him so. I said, look, the and, and I chair the investment committees on various institutions, and I have done this 
for 30 years as, long, as well as being a professional. Um, I'm the chairman of the investment committee at Sibley Memorial Hospital. It's one of Johns Hopkins hospitals. Um, one of the things that keeps you out of trouble during difficult times is your discipline, is your asset allocation. And so if your asset allocation, if you have made a decision that you're going to be invested 60 percent in equities and 40 percent in bonds, use that as a ballpark, and equities really do well, and they go up, and they go up, and they go up 20 percent. Now, let's just stay with me here at this math. I'm not going to lose you on the math, I promise. But if 60 percent goes up 20 percent, right? Six times two is 12, which means I should now, in theory, if my bonds haven't done anything, be at 72% equities. So on some regular basis, most institutions will say, we're going to rebalance. I'm going to sell that 12% difference in equities. I'm going to allocate that to bonds, and I'm going to keep my exposure at 60% equities. And that limits my risk. And then I don't have too much that's going to be too volatile. It keeps me disciplined to take some off the table when I'm feeling great. Conversely, when the market goes through the floor and that, and that market falls, that 12%, and I'm now looking at 48% in equities, it tells me to sell some bonds and buy some stocks while they're down and lower some 12% in price. Those disciplines keep you safe and sound because they're going to come along and tell you to do things when they feel worst. You are going to be selling stocks when they're going up, when your portfolio is doing great, and you're going to be selling some of those things that are going to continue to go up. By the way, they're going to continue to go up after you sell them, and you're going to feel just like crap. I promise. You'll feel like crap when you do it. And, uh, you know, I have a friend, Don Hayes, who used to be with Wheat First Securities 30 years ago or 32 years, whenever I started a long time ago uh, with we and he's he's still working I think in Tennessee Don had one of the most offensive irritating southern accents you have ever heard in your life and it was a real twang by the way it was a whine if you will and 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 Don, Don said and and I will quote as best I can he said now listen every time you do anything in the stock market you ought to be in a full-on body sweat a full-on body sweat when you do anything so when you go to sale and sell was a bad at least two syllables, if not three. And when you go to sale, uh, you, 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 those stocks ought to be going up, and you ought to be sweating just kicking yourself right in the behind uh, for selling those stocks. And when you're ready to, ready to never see another, buy another stock again, uh, that's when you want to buy. When you're in a full-body sweat, sure, you're going to lose every last damn nickel you're putting into that market. That's when you want to buy. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to remember my friend Don Hayes and uh, that you should be in a full body sweat when you do anything, it's, I think it's helpful to say, how do you feel now? If I'm getting ready to buy, one of the questions I always ask myself is, how do I feel? If I'm ready to sell, how do I feel? And if I say I am scared or if I'm excited, I stop. It's a stop. It's a dead stop. It's part of my discipline. I just talked to uh, our investment consultant uh, at And Company, a guy named Mike Bossler, over on the hospital's uh, portfolio. Uh, our asset allocation for equities has crept up. Uh, we, uh, we will probably rebalance some away from equities. So this is part of the discipline that I think most every professional investor I know, the one thing you don't do is wet your finger, uh, hold it up into the economic, emotional, political headline winds, and then make a decision. That doesn't do it, because uh, we know that in the near term, all of these headlines 
kind of can change the short-term pricing of stocks. They can change the direction of stocks. Um, but in the long term, as we remember from uh, Warren Buffett, uh, the stock market is a weighing machine, and those numbers will weigh out. Uh, so take a look at those balance sheets. They will take you to the right place. My friend Andy Mathis is just a genius. He really is. Genius. Uh, understands the bond market better than anybody I know, uh, and I followed the bond market for a long time. Andy, welcome to the forecast. Thank you, thank you. Good to be here. Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, we watched the 10-year uh, Treasury. Andy got up to a 305 this afternoon. That's 25 basis points higher than the two-year Treasury. I've been boring our listeners now for months, telling them that they have to pay attention to that difference between those two yields, between the two-year and the 10-year. What does it mean to you? What are you seeing in the bond market, Andy? Are we happy? Are we worried? Are you excited? Are you ebullient? Or are you scared? It's a, it's really tough to make you know make sense of what's going on, but I I think so much money is parked defensively and just in short stuff. There's so much demand for just safe money parking that I'm uh, you know it's plays right into sort of what Powell is aiming to do. I think you know the pace of the Fed raising rates a couple of more times seems like that's going to be part of the course, and you know whether or not inflation gets gets to be more of a problem because of these tariffs or something else, uh, I'm not sure. But we seem to get to this 305, you know, maybe we get to our our high that we hit back in May of 311 again. But it seems like something always goes wrong somewhere else in the world, and everybody loves to buy those treasuries to keep themselves safe. So okay, two things feels, here, Andy, because yeah. so what you just said was, you said a couple of things there. One, uh, we, you said there's a lot of short-term money out there that's staying safe. Why, why do I care about that, that there's a lot of short-term money? Is that going to keep the market healthy, or does that put it at risk? I think it's a great thing for the market because if we saw any kind of pullback in the equity markets, there's so much cash that's parked in liquid short-term assets, and people who've missed out on this great equity boom would be like, I'm, I'm going in. There's a lot I'm of dry powder. So you're saying there's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines ready to buy? Absolutely. And you I'm think done. that that money will go to equities, not necessarily just stay in bonds? I think so many people have missed out on the party because they've been so defense, you know, they've been so worried that, oh, when is the stock market going to crash? And so there's been tremendous demand for a long time. And, and that makes me feel a lot better on a macro level. That doesn't mean, you know, we don't want to, if you own bonds and rates go up, it doesn't make your bond worth more. It makes it worth less. Right. But Rates go up, I own bonds, and my bonds become worth less. That one I got figured. Good. Okay. That's it. But it, it seems like a lot of noise. I just, we just can't uh, so, get out of our trading range that we've been in for a long well, time. Well, and you, you just said that the high end of the trading range has been, what, 305 to 310 or 311, somewhere in there. So you're saying we're reaching the top. You expect this market to rest. So when that yield goes up, you're telling me prices are going down. So as I see those yields go higher, what that really tells me, therefore, is the bond market's fall. You're telling me as it's falling, it's going to bounce somewhere in this level. You expect this to be a bottom in here and you'd be a buyer? Is that what you just said? I, I, I kind of can't help it. You know, I mean, it doesn't mean that we've been <laughs> a new level. You know, maybe we hit what do you mean, you, what do you, mean you can't? What do you mean you can't help it? That's kind of like I can't walk past that bar, uh, you know, during past near happy hour. What do you mean you can't help it? 
it's such a good special, and they're so nice in there. No, I, I think that <laughs> at the end of the day, you, you, it's been so difficult, and so many people with so many letters after their names have been so wrong <laughs> on when race they're going to finally rise. And yeah. so I've taken my psychic hat and thrown it away because we've all collectively in the market been wrong. But, you know, it's different this time. You know, what is... Oh, the, God, the Andy, you didn't say that. Else? You didn't just say it's different this time, did you? Mother <laughs> Trip, you're always looking for something. And what? so I keep reverting to, gosh, this is where we seem to get. And something, you know, a car somewhere is going to fly off the tracks. Not in America. So, it's probably going to be somewhere else. So market's ready. Well, just, Les Munson's going to tell us about that when we get to him here later. Is he going to tell us what's ready to fly off the track and why our market's getting, our fixed income market's getting ready to rally? So you don't see this particular decline as being the beginning of the end. You think it should be bought. I, I think it, I think you're good here. I mean, just we're playing defense. I mean, our strategy is, is defensive and protecting. We're not, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to go buy a whole ton of really long bonds right now. I feel like that's more you know, going to the roulette table or blackjack table. But but it, so it is you're going to keep being conservative then, huh? That I'm going to keep being conservative because you don't you don't get paid. You know the difference you're talking about the difference between the twos and the thirty is nothing. You're not getting paid enough to take that risk. You're not yeah, but when but return. when the ten year appreciates, uh, you know, twenty five basis points, that's worth a lot more dollars than the, than the, the when the two year appreciates. Well, that's true, and that's why you know it's that's why people, people go out there in your uh, your equity strategy because they're probably doing well there too when that happens, right? And the equity strategy should do well. All right, Andy Mathis not calling a top. Andy, thank you very much for being with us on the Farcast. Now I told you that Andy was probably one of the best uh, bond managers in the country, one of the smartest people I've ever known in bonds. And I know you're saying, "Geez, how I wish I could talk to Andy Mathis about my portfolio." <laughs> well, of course you do. What I failed to mention, it just happened to slip my mind, was that. Andy is the head bond manager at Farr, Miller, and Washington. I'm sure that comes as a, as a great shock, but he has been in this business for a long time. Uh, he is a municipal securities principal. Um, he, he's had all sorts of licenses. He went to Texas Christian University. Andy, when did you start working for Farr, Miller? Back in uh, January of 2012. January 2012. And I, what I remember from my interview as I interviewed Andy in a Starbucks uh, was I said, well, t t so tell me something else about you. And he looked at me and he said, well, uh, I used when I played football, I... Uh, sacked Peyton Manning. Uh, I said, you what? Andy, okay, quickly, we're way out of time, Andy. You did sack Peyton Manning? Yes and no. It's really what? <laughs> I, I, I looked at that tape. I got the VHS tape of that game, and, and really, it's a bummer. He threw the ball right before I tackled him. It's, it's sad. It you know, I have told, I have talked to, uh, I, I've, I've, uh, I've gotten to know Peyton Manning. I have told him that I hired the guy who sacked him. He said, who? You must have hired a lot of damn people. <laughs> uh, anyway, Andy Mathis, uh, just one other person. And then I got his backup. Oh, good. Perfect. Well, another person, and we're going to go right now to talk to Dan Mahaffey. Uh, you are one of those other people with a fuzzy memory about your high school years. Uh, it happens, I guess. All right. Uh, it's a very serious issue about which uh, we're, we're going to discuss uh, with, with Dan Mahaffey when we come back. 
So Andy's not seeing a top in the bond, is, is, is seeing perhaps a little bit of a low point in the bond market, looking for a rally, not seeing any problems. We're going to come back next week and tell you just on the forecast next week, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell everybody else on CNBC the following day. So uh, you got to tune in. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back. Thanks to my great friend, Andy Mathis. We're going to be right back with the great Dan Mahaffey on the forecast. You're listening to Forecast. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Love that uh, those toe tapping uh, music that we always play. Uh, Boris put that together for us. Wherever where, wherever he is, we send him our very best out there. I think he had to go to the Soviet Union uh, to take care of some old issues uh, with, from his Soviet days. <laughs> That's what he calls it, by the way. He will not call it Russia. Anyway, we're back on the Farcast. Uh, terrific listening to Andy Matheson, his call on the bond market. I'm going to say this again at the end of our program, but please remember that if you think you've heard a recommendation to buy any kind of security here on the Farcast, you haven't. We're not recommending that you change your portfolio, you buy and sell anything. I'll have a full disclosure at the end. But please check with financial your financial advisor before you think about making any change. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress is our senior political analyst here on the Farcast. Does a great job for us every week trying to explain all of the nonsense and noise and brouhaha that has become Washington uh, these days. Um, we are going to talk now about uh, uh, the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, which I, 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 I'm actually beginning this discussion with great trepidation. I'm not quite sure how to wade into these waters, though they're very important. We're also going to talk uh, about the age of Donald Trump and Trumpism. And then he had an interesting tweet, Economics 101, about the Chinese tariffs. And we're going to get into Les Munson. Les Munson is here with us already. Let's just weigh in. If if, 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 if Mahaffey gets really outrageous, and when does he not, just just <laughs> go ahead and, and jump right in, uh, knowing full well that he'll probably do the same thing to you when we get to your segment. Um, first, though, I was, you know, we were just talking to Annie Mathis about when he had told me that he had sacked uh, Peyton Manning. And now I've got to go back to Peyton and talk with him about that and kind of apologize. Uh, you, you, you had some insights as to Peyton Manning? Well, I think it just as uh, good of a he is of a football player, uh, also a good businessman. Uh, when he bought uh, 12 to 20, I forget the exact number, of Papa John's franchises. He bought Papa John's? Papa John's franchises. Franchises. In the greater Denver area. The Colorado. S- yeah, yeah, state of Colorado legalized marijuana a couple weeks later. So that's <laughs> uh, leading the receiver in business as well as on the field. Buy low, sell high. Yes. <laughs> Very high. Mile high. Uh, you know, what else could he have done? Ho-hos and... Uh, uh, yes. You know, Frito-Lays. Uh, who makes those Cheeto things? God, uh, I had a roommate that used to stock those things. Sorry, William, but, you know, God, I've never seen anybody eat as many of those things. All right. Dan Mahaffey. Yes. Um, and, and good for you, Peyton, by the way. Uh, all right. Uh, this, is, um, this is remarkable. It looked like when we last spoke that uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh was moving uh, apace. Uh, without many impediments other than the normal political noise to become uh, the next Supreme Court justice. Yes, I believe I described it as it would take something cataclysmic 
to derail I, this nomination. I think those were your exact words, cataclysmic to derail. Is this cataclysmic? I think we've had a cataclysm here. Really? I do. I think that the, the tenor of these allegations, uh, particularly in the Me Too era, uh, will cloud his nomination, and if the Republicans decide to go ahead with this, this will be a lodestone in the election, and I believe, unfortunately, too, uh, it would raise uh, significant concerns about the legitimacy of the court and any decisions that he might have on issues related to women's rights, uh, reproductive rights, or social issues. You, I, that sounds like he's done, according to Mahaffey. Well, I think what we're hearing, too, is there's the, the Washington rumor mill is uh, who could be uh, put in place to quickly replace him in time, uh, trying to get someone uh, in advance before the uh, before the lame duck session, because there's also the the optics for the institution of the court that if a uh, a judge were were placed in during the lame duck uh, with a Democratic Senate looming, uh, there's the legitimacy questions there as well. Okay, let's the, go back though, because uh, uh, let's let's go back to Clarence Thomas, correct, and Anita Hill, right. Uh, and and this similar uh, in the same nature of allegations did not derail his candidacy for the court. He powered through. It doesn't seem to uh, there hasn't been any evidence. I don't think that's ever been that I've seen cited that says that any of his decisions are impaired or in any way not what people would have expected and that he hasn't been a very thoughtful jurist. I I agree with that, but the challenge is that the Anita Hill era in 1991, when it came to uh, sexual politics and issues of sexual harassment, uh, is as similar to the, that they had uh, push-button phones then, and we have touchscreen iPhones now. Uh, the, the attitudes of the public and the, the political environment surrounding these issues, uh, has there's been a sea change since that era, um, and particularly over the past several months on this. Uh, and All right, that- there's been a sea change, but 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 here's what I, I and I'm struggling with this, ladies and gentlemen, and 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 Dan and everybody else. Uh, you know, I, I think if, if there is if there is an accusation, if there was a crime committed, if this was an attempted rape, story over. There is nothing to discuss. Game over. Right? I mean, that's that's anyway. That's my perspective. But. Uh, and 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 how do you know what I mean? Or if this was a, a drunken moment of seventeen-year-olds thirty-five years ago that nobody can quite remember, it, it, do we all have to hold up to that test? I mean, is everybody going to have to recount and show exactly what they did at every moment when they were seventeen? I mean, I, I don't. It seems like a stupid standard. The crime doesn't. I mean, you commit a crime that's significant. Okay, you, you're a candidate for the Supreme Court. You you have it. You no. I mean, you, you're out. Yes. You're, that's that. Let, let's unpack this a, a few ways. First, let's look at the Supreme Court nomination hearings themselves. Over time, and particularly from Robert Burke onwards, they've become less about examining the jurisprudence of a candidate and his fitness for office and much more of a political dog and pony show where the nominee refuses to answer any questions that are hypothetical, even though they're going to the nation's highest constitutional court. And as a result, it is posturing by both parties uh, against their the opponent's guy and for their guy. Um, right. OK, so we've we, we've seen that. And by the way, I, I read uh, a fair amount of 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 Bork uh, when he was up. You know, yes. I watched those hearings. Um, 
Bork, and I'm not being partisan, ladies and gentlemen. I read this stuff. I listened. I thought he was thoughtful. I thought he was brilliant. Um, I didn't quite get uh, exactly how he didn't get confirmed, other than for political reasons, is what it looked to me. And 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 and. Uh, I, I, I was, uh, at, at the time, I mean, I probably would have not been on his same side of the aisle. But as I looked at his credentials, I thought, this is a very qualified guy. So, and so, and that Brilliant gets the, guy. the fundamental institutional question of, is this a constitutional court or is it a political court? And if it's going to be a political court, how do you uh, look to this process to, and how it affects the legitimacy of the court? My partisan alignment, separate from this, just in my role uh, in my organization, is looking at it from an institutional perspective. Okay, so court, tell me. And if the court is seen as this uh, conservative body, and it's something that I think even Justice Chief Justice Roberts was very concerned about uh, during his Obamacare decision. Uh, is the idea that if the court is somehow seen as a just another branch of political government that has a partisan leaning one way or another, right. then the entire constitutional and legal foundation uh, is lost. And if these hearings don't go forward without actually getting into the facts of this event and the allegations, I think that pushes the court in a way uh, that further delegitimizes it going into the future. Les, you're nodding over there. I, I, I totally agree. I, I do have another way of looking at this, which is that this isn't about the Supreme Court at all. This is about the Senate, and this is about the way the Senate conducts itself today. One of the terrible things that happened is that the Senate's largely gotten rid of the filibuster so that yes. you only need 51 votes to confirm a nominee. It yes. would be much better if that threshold were 60 votes. That would force the Senate to be bipartisan. It would force there to be a dynamic in which Democrats would have to come over to vote for a Republican nominee. Right now, they don't have to. There's no consequence, virtually no consequence for them if they abandon all Trump nominees and just resist. So the current situation encourages partisanship. So really, I I think this is more about the Senate than it is necessarily about the Supreme Court, but I do agree with Dan. And I think it's an excellent point. This, the challenge for the Senate there, too, is if they're going to get to the bottom of this, how do we avoid it being like much of what uh, the Gorsuch hearings, the Kavanaugh hearings, and I'll say the Sotomayor and Kagan hearings, where it was just political posturing uh, to bases in advance of the next election? So how do you actually investigate this? And I think it... it it, unfortunately, for the Senate leadership, it doesn't fit with their timeline. But you have to look to examples like the Iran-Contra hearings, where you brought in a respected outside litigator, Arthur Lyman in that case, who handled the questioning and the investigation in a way that didn't it wasn't a speech back to the base uh, each time these senators were uh, were coming up. You know, I've also thought about this from the and we've got to keep moving on here, Dan, um, uh, from the perspective of uh, as a father. And, and I have a grown uh, adult daughter. And I keep thinking, OK, if she came home and said, Dad, mm, here was uh, a, a, an experience I had, and I'm going to tell you, it was beyond the pale. It was beyond what was normal, and there's something wrong with this guy. I would go with Maggie all day long. Yes. I, that's all I would need to hear. I don't need any more explanation. I got it. I know this kid's character. I know what she's saying. That too. So I, I, I truly am, am, am torn about it. I, I, I think um, uh, it, it strikes me as one of those unfortunate moments that had to come at this part of a process uh, seems seems very I, unfortunate. Yeah, I think it's it's we 
it's a it's a trauma that none of us I think will ever be able to understand and we pray that none of the the women in our family and friends ever have something like that and no, we need God, to no. and we need to understand that this needs to have a public and open nonpartisan hearing to to get the facts established uh, a public open nonpartisan hearing what what do you mean there and how does one ever find one of those anywhere <laughs> well i think open televised and you bring in an outside counsel to handle the the lines of questioning and investigation um, and is that fair to, e- to, to bo- either of the i mean the either participant i mean is it is it fair to the judge is it fair uh, to um, and that's the you know that's the question of Professor fairness Ford. legitimacy they're all uh, moving targets here right now you, we are going to go now uh, and, and bring in Les Munson. We're going to go to a break. We're going to have a quick break. We're going to come back with and stay with us, Dan. Again, we're actually going to start with you again, Dan. Uh, you said uh, we're missing the point from Econ 101 when it comes to China. Why are we missing the point from Economics 101 when we're dealing with China? We're going to ask Mahaffey that when we come back in two minutes, 30 seconds. Let's make it faster. Let's be back in 20 seconds, Claude on the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr, and what a great pleasure it is to be with you again this week. Thank you so much for downloading us and inviting us into your earbuds and your desktops and your living rooms and your offices. We appreciate it a great deal, even in your cars, I'm sure. For some of you, I was hearing that you were driving around with us, and we appreciate that. Thanks for the cards and the notes, the emails and the texts that go to my friend Harry Jennings with great feedback on on all of your questions and what we've been trying to uh, provide you here on the Farcast. If you have any suggestions for things you'd like us to talk about, please let us know. So, terrific. We got to listen to my uh, great friend and uh, bond portfolio manager, Andy Mathis, tell us that he thinks this little pullback should be bought and that there's a lot of money in short-term bonds and fixed income ready to buy. So, there's a bit of a buffer, a bit of an insurance policy out there uh, should equity markets start to dip. Dan Mahaffey and I spent a good deal of time with the uh, wise counsel here from Les Munson trying to sort through what was going on with Brett Kavanaugh. I'm not sure we sorted through a whole lot of it, but it sounded like from uh, our friend Dan Mahaffey that he thinks that um, uh, the candidacy of Judge Kavanaugh is in serious trouble. Um, There will be hearings upcoming Monday. We'll talk about it on Tuesday again. So, Mahaffey, uh, before we get to the brilliant Les Munson, uh, you tweeted. It's all uh, about tweets these days. Tweets. It is about tweets. Yeah. If you can't tweet them, join them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dear Lord. That was awful. I apologize. <laughs> First, Economics 101. Uh, with regard to tariffs on China, you said this is a tax that will be paid by the American people, not China. It is. Uh, obvious that the president feels emboldened to act on trade and is hearing what corresponds with his worldview by uh, people and uh, and on trade advisors uh, like Peter Navarro. Um, and you had some other suggestions about what could be more effective. And what do you mean? Uh, what are you trying to say about the tariffs and trade in China? 
Well, the, you hear it in the president's statements. There's the fundamental uh, misconception that he carries deep in his core that the tariffs uh, are a price adjustment that China has to pay. And those are not paid by the Chinese. They're paid by American consumers when they go uh, to get these goods. And by nature, those goods will become more expensive. People will be able to spend money on less money, be able to spend less money on other uh, economic items. And it, it negates a lot of the uh, strong economic performance that we've seen, and even some of the money that's come back into people's uh, pockets from these tax cuts. So you have this environment where, and you know, and some people will say, "Well, we're not seeing the pain yet," uh, but we have this this challenge of inventories are in place, the tariffs are coming into place, they're coming into more and more uh, consumer goods. I noticed though they did exempt the new Apple Watch just to avoid public outrage, uh, but these Thank goods, are, these goods are going to be coming in. I don't have one yet. I Either. And these goods are going to be coming in, and they're they're going to be uh, costing more for the public. Uh, and as a result, it's not the, the Chinese government or the Chinese people who pay them. It's the American people. Well, in theory, though, uh, if those prices go up for the American people, the Chinese will sell fewer of those items to the American people. The American or they'll people just are sell say, them to the Europeans or to Latin Americans, Middle Easterners. That's the in, in well, a global one market. Would, one, would, one would also argue that if they could sell them to those people, they'd already be selling them to those people. And we're really talking about our market, and they want our market. Well, they want our market, and then the, the challenge is, too, that then those are American companies selling. But that's globalization. I'm arguing which gets the president's to the broader, book as which, best I can. I'm the, running out of which stuff, Which gets though. to the broader... Uh, my second point in the, uh, in the, in the can't-beat them, tweet them storm, uh, is the uh, the approach that the president took where it was to offend Europe, offend NAFTA partners, alienate the South Koreans, alienate the Japanese, where I think if you really wanted to put pressure on China and use these methods, which actually probably could have been brought out of the toolbox, if you really wanted to get the Chinese, you, you coordinate with the international allies, uh, you look at very targeted measures against the truly notorious offenders yeah, like yeah. ZTE, yeah. which he let up on. Um, and this is a, it's a dirty word in the United States, too, but industrial policy. And Trump is thinking about steel and thinking about the good old days where a good could move from Cleveland, Toledo to Detroit to be manufactured. And that's not how it works anymore. So what's the future? Those things are going to be built by robots. It's automated. What are the future things? 5G technology, cyber technology, et cetera. Lester Munson is going to explain this to us because Mahaffey's laying out a very good case because that's what Mahaffey does. He's a principal at the interna uh, in the international uh, BGR group, a leading government relations firm in Washington, D.C. That sort of makes you a lobbyist. You know. That's exactly what it makes me. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> he consults with foreign governments, corporations, advocacy groups, also serves as an adjunct faculty, a professor at Johns Hopkins University, uh, speaks on foreign policy uh, of Congress and on U.S. foreign uh, assistance issues. Uh, he does a whole lot of things. He was 26 years on Capitol Hill uh, in the executive branch, staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Look. This guy is the insider's insider, the pro's Washington pro. Welcome back. We're really glad you're here. Thanks for having me. I love I love hearing all that stuff. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> well, and uh, your mother told me last time you were here, I left out a couple of the highlights. Uh, and sorry. Uh, yeah, he went to University of Sh Chicago. I'm sorry, Mrs. Munson, and has a master's degree from St. John's That's College better. in Annapolis. And he has two children, married and two children, uh, high school-age children. 
Yes, sir. That's actually what takes up all my time. 17 and 16. <laughs> oh, God help you. Um, mine are now 24 and 25, getting ready to turn 25 and 26. And all I can tell you is it gets easier. Oh, thank God. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just would start to shake if I remembered too much. So is Mahaffey right? What's he, what's he trying to tell us? What's going on with China and the, and the tariffs? And explain this to us, Les. Well, I don't disagree with Dan intellectually, but I do disagree with him politically. What President Trump is doing is exploiting a huge political bubble right now, where we've been unwilling to challenge the conventional wisdom on China for a very long time, for decades, really. And there have been big changes in China. They're going after our business community. There's intellectual property rights issues. There are other things where our business community is actually concerned about the relationship with China now. It's gotten, this this bubble has gotten so big that the politics have changed. Are you, no, wait, are you saying that the, that the issues with China, are you just Describing them sort of pre-Trump tariff rhetoric that the business community was so concerned that they're now sort of welcoming uh, Donald Trump intervention? Or are you saying that they're now getting very, very concerned because of the heat and, uh, I, I guess, uh, vigor of the current discussion? Well, if you look at the press releases from places like the Chamber of Commerce, they'll come out opposed to tariffs. But yes. I think it's a mild opposition. And I think they're watching this very carefully. The lady to doth see protest too much. That's right. They're watching to see where this bilateral relationship goes. It's hugely important. They want to see the U.S government fight for U.S. businesses a little harder. So they're welcoming this in part, even if at the same time they still have our conventional wisdom concerns about tariffs. Okay. So, I, 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 now this is just me being stupid, ladies and gentlemen, but I didn't quite get the answer to my question. So is, was the, is, is, is Trump, is the business community now concerned about tariffs because uh, they are concerned that the U.S. might be overplaying its hand or that we are beginning a war we don't know how to get out of? I think there's an overhang of the last trade war from decades ago that everyone knows a trade war is bad. It's right. going to result in a Great Depression, in a downturn economically. But we're not seeing that right now. No. The president has implemented tariffs. Congress foolishly, <coughs> arguably, gave him this authority, uh, gave that office the authority decades ago. The president's actually using it, and there is not a bad impact on the U.S. economy. So people, I think the jury is a little bit out politically right. on whether this is, is sellable or not. So the, the, the president uh, has said, look, we've got a really strong economy, everything's firing, and we can afford to do this now. Now is the time to take these folks head on from a position of strength. I think he's right, and I think and I think there are folks in the business community. Maybe not Hank Paulson, who is still, you know, who was the Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush, who's still very much a, a pro Beijing uh, presence in the business community. But I think other folks are saying, well, let's maybe let's give this a chance. We don't want to take these tariffs too far. We don't want to get into a full fledged war, but we do need to start pushing back against China. Well, and before your listeners start asking where I keep my red flag patch on my jacket. Um, <laughs> I agree with Lester on pushing back on the Chinese and pushing back hard. What I disagree with is using methods that actually affect the American economy when there are other things in our toolbox and working with others where we could really get to the, the future industries that are going to matter, not so much worrying about the industries where the, uh, the horse has already left the barn. Let's, so, okay, can, go ahead. If I can jump in, I, I, Dan, again, I don't disagree, but politically, look how far President Trump has gotten by defending forgotten industries, the coal industry. He made that a centerpiece of 
his campaign. We all know that the future of U.S. energy is not coal, but he made that an important political pillar in his campaign, and it worked. Okay. So, what I'm hearing from you both is that uh, some sort of adjustment and correction on U.S. trade with China was in order. Um, Dan doesn't think perhaps it was quite it's it's being focused in the right way. Is that fair? That and I think too that the and it is it worked excellently politically. It's the question of for the future of the country and for the future uh, of the party. Is it uh, winning the battle but losing the war? And uh, so right now we we are escalating and we're still escalating again. And yet markets went up today uh, on the on the heels of this latest round of we're going to have another two hundred billion dollars in tariffs. And China answered back and said, well, yeah, well, so are we. And and, and we're going to find something else to put a tariff on, too. But the Dow Jones Industrial Average up about one hundred and eighty five points, twenty six thousand two hundred and forty six S&P 500 over twenty nine hundred. Uh, and and the Nasdaq is flirting with uh, eight thousand again, seventy nine fifty six. Markets are still responding favorably. I mean, we're not having a real correction. What's the problem with China? Less? Or do, should we, are they are they vulnerable? Is, is China in a vulnerable position? Or uh, we we've said the president said we're on a, stra- a strong uh, economic footing. How about China? China's on a on a strong economic footing, but it's on a very weak political footing. They have a, yeah, a, a command and control political system. They have a, they're a one party state. They suppress the freedom of speech. They're very afraid of their own people. That is not a tenable situation in the long run. Okay, so uh, and and tell me, let's let's take it because I I know you're interested in this. Tell me about the long run. Where do you see the Chinese economy going? And we're going a little bit long here. We're going to go for about one or two more minutes, and then we're going to wrap up, ladies and gentlemen, just so you know that you don't have to sit in your car much longer to listen to the end of the forecast this week. But look, the guy is brilliant. We've got him here. I got to hear. Tell me what was going on with the Chinese economy. Well, I don't want to take credit for this. I would I would tell people to go look at the Wall Street Journal today. I can't imagine Walter, why you wouldn't take credit for it. Walter Please. Russell Mead wrote a great column about how China is ex- has to export its excess productivity. It's using this one belt, one road strategy of forcing developing nations to adopt huge loans to implement Chinese infrastructure. It's not, it's not sustainable. Those countries are starting to push back. Pakistan in particular is very concerned about this, this debt burden that China is pushing on top of it. And, and that's dumb, a- I'm sorry, dumb this down for me. You've got to dumb it down for me, because I even read the article. China makes a whole lot of stuff that China can can't use itself, and so they've got to sell it to other people. And they even have to loan people the money so they can buy it. And they have to loan people money, and the, and probably the terms, according to Pakistan and others, are not all that favorable for Pakistan and others. One of the alarming things was Sri Lanka was forced to give a, a 99-year lease on an important deep-sea port to the Chinese in order to help pay off their debt. And Okay, so uh, this, this uh, uh, sounds almost like coercion. That's exactly what it is. Oh, it is. Hey, I got Shocking. one right. Yeah. You see that, Harry? I got one right. Yep, you Coercion. Got it, boss. Coercion. There we go. Uh, first time in what, like <laughs> ten minutes, that Harry said, "Hey, you got it, boss." Uh, it's uh, it's a lot of job security there for Harry. I got to tell you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, China's economy. You know, China's been b- 
bragging about economic growth, GDP growth, 7 8%, 10% for a long time. Nobody believes it, but they continue to grow. You, you sort of sound like you think they might be getting to a stalling point in the Chinese economic growth. They either have to reform their own economy and start to open it up uh, to create a real consumer class in their own country, or they have to continue this, this kind of crazy imper- this empire building with, by loaning other countries money and forcing them to, to build infrastructure. It's not a great choice. So you're saying that central planning uh, to grow your economy is not going to work. It's not a good idea. Well, it's worked so far, but uh-huh. they may be, they're reaching a tipping point where they're going to have to change, change tactics, and they're not showing that they're doing that. Uh, I'm going to uh, gonna go to India next week uh, and, and take a look at, uh, I guess, the most bifurcated uh, economy that I think I probably know about in the world, where the rich are really rich and the poor are really poor, and there are a whole hell of a lot more really poor than there are really rich. Um, it, that emerging middle class in China is hugely powerful as an economic force. Yes, Les? It's important, uh, and we need to be watching it, but it's not what it could be. There is not a real—China does not have a real middle class yet. Well, and they don't have a real economy in which the level playing field in which a middle class could operate and evolve, right, and grow on its own? That's right. And the political moves we're seeing don't seem to be indicating that they're going to open up and have real accountability and a transparent economy. It's going to be more command and control. Ownership of U.S. bonds by China now as low as it's been in six months. Watch this closely. Les Munson, Dan Mahaffey, thank you so much for being here on the Farcast. Remember. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you think you heard any recommendation to buy or sell a security, you didn't. If you're thinking of making a change to your portfolio or your investment strategy, please check with an investment or financial professional, or please give us a call at Far Miller and Washington, farmiller.com. I've got a lot of really great, talented people uh, who can help walk you through uh, turbulent waters, and, and even uh, we'll even get you on the phone with the great Andy Mathis. He's terrific. Thank you again for listening, tuning into the Farcast. Can't tell how much we appreciate it. It is a great honor uh, to be able to talk to you every week. In Washington, D.C., with a very full and grateful heart, I'm Michael Farr.